What comes to mind when I say Advent season? What do you think about when you hear the phrase Advent season? What comes to mind? Candles? Calendars? Candy? Hymns. We're finally singing hymns again in church. (laughs) Friends, family, food. It's the holiday season. But what is Advent season? And that's an important question, especially for us reform types who tend to be soft on the liturgical calendar, historically weak, light on the liturgical calendar. The Synod of Dort only affirmed the redemptive historical feast days. I quote the church order of Dort. It is going to be a wonderful Lord's Day. I'm quoting Dort. Church order, not the canons, the order. Article 67 says the churches shall observe, in addition to Sunday, also Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost with the following day of circumcision and the ascension of Christ. The Dutch churches had to follow the liturgical calendar, but only the redemptive historical days. Now, our synods have softened Dort. Now it's going to get even better. I'm going to read our church order. I'm pulling out our church order. Article 37 of our church order, which follows the Dort order, says, The consistory shall call the congregation together for corporate worship twice on each Lord's Day. Special services may be called in observance to Christmas Day, Good Friday, Ascension Day, Day of Prayer, Thanksgiving, New Year's, New Year's Day. Uh, and in times of great distress or blessings, attention should also be given to Easter and Pentecost on their respective Lord's Days. So we who regulate worship to the principles of God's word, we don't make room for all the, the Romish additions to the liturgical calendar, but we do, we are allowed to follow those redemptive historical days of Christ. We are allowed to give room in time to remember these days. So where does that put Advent season? Historically, the earliest official mention of Advent comes from the council of Sargossa, Sargossa in 380 AD. This council was called because a heretic named Prince Princilian, the heresy Princilianism, Princilian was a Gnostic heretic who believed that matter was evil. Matter is the darkness of this world. And through ascetic practices, the light, we can escape the stuff of this world that has enslaved us and become the gods we were supposed to be. Now, Gnosticism is a form of Platonism, and Platonists tend to hate matter. And so to ward off this heresy, it made theological sense to synod to celebrate the incarnation when God became matter, flesh, and dwelt among us. So Sargosa is the first place in history where we find practices of Advent, the fourth century. And the solstice, the solstice, the darkest day of the year in the northern hemisphere, because the coming of the light of the world made a lot of sense in a world filled with so much 
darkness. And in the end, the church has been practicing Advent almost as long as it has been practicing the Apostles' Creed. And that's a pretty good pedigree. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which is a translation of the Greek word pereusia, which speaks of the coming of the Lord, both his first and second coming. So Advent celebrates both the first and second comings of Christ. In Advent, we celebrate not only the birth, death, resurrection of Christ, but the coming of Christ, his return. And so Advent takes us not to only the birth of Christ, but Advent celebrates all the benefits and blessings that we have found in Christ since he was born. And the benefit Isaiah promised in our text this morning, the benefit Isaiah promised to our forefathers is the restoration of the kingdom of God. Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites, and the Assyrians are coming, the Babylonians are coming, and the Persians are coming. There's wars and rumors of wars. But God is promising to his people that his kingdom will be established. And it will be an Advent kingdom. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, the Advent kingdom. We are going to study this morning in this text, the kingdom of God. It is an Advent kingdom. And I got three points for you this morning. This kingdom is a last day's kingdom. It is a kingdom of truth. And it is a kingdom of peace. The Advent kingdom, last days, truth, and peace. And the kingdom has come. And it has come in these last days, for according to Isaiah, we read chapter 2, verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, notice in the text, right off the bat, he didn't hear the word of the Lord. He saw the word of the Lord. So this is a vision. Isaiah was received a vision of the Lord. It's prophecy in a vision. And it is a vision of the latter days. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So we have a vision of a future event, which is known as the latter days. Latter days because Israel days were filled with sin. That's Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is law. It's heavy with law. Therefore, it's heavy with guilt. We read that in Isaiah 1, look at verse 21, for example. Isaiah 1, 21 says, How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Where there is law, there is guilt, for our days are sinful. And where there is guilt, there is condemnation, verse 25 God says, I will turn my hand against you. And this is to his own people. This is God speaking to his own people. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians were coming. And I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all of your alloy. 
And that is the law, and it brought guilt. And that is the law, it brings condemnation and death. And that is the first word of Isaiah. But then the second word is gospel. That is our text this morning, gospel. We hear this law, we hear their sins and misery, but God here in our text promises a new day. A new day is coming. An Advent day. A suffering servant, Isaiah will say, right? A man of sorrows. A man of sorrows is coming. And by his iniquity, he was wounded for our transgressions, and by his iniquity, we will be found righteous. So Isaiah's vision, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, is a vision, a vision of no more condemnation, for Christ has borne our iniquities. Christ died for us. So Isaiah's vision is a vision of everlasting comfort and joy. Now the Hebrews designated history as the days, the latter days. Thus the Hebrew title of the book of Chronicles is the words of the days. It means the words of the days. And we do the same. You hear it when older men reflect on their younger counterparts. Well, back in my day, <laughs> and younger men, that, that is code for we're better than you. And I used to not believe it until I got older. There is a biblical history that our days follow. There's a biblical history that our days follow. The Bible dictates time. The Bible dictates time. And Christ is its fulfillment. Christ is its goal. Christ the glory. And we are in the last days. Listen to the writer of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But in these last days, as the writer of Hebrews is speaking, he says, these are the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us in Christ. We are in the last days, brothers, sisters. Isaiah spoke about the kingdom of Christ, and it's our time. We are between two advents, between the time of Christ's birth, death, resurrection, and his second coming to judge the living and the dead. And what does it mean for us to be this Latter days people. It means it's time for the church to get busy, right? To go out into the highways, to go out into the byways and call as many to Christ as we can. It's time for a mission. It's the Great Commission. It's a call to love our neighbor and to care for our neighbor in such a way that they ask for the hope that lies within us. And the answer is Christ. It's also time for endurance. We have a race to run. The finish line is there. We face struggles and temptation. So did our ancient fathers. They faced many tribulations and wars. And they might have given up. Yet the hope of Advent gave them endurance to fight the good fight of the faith. And they won their race. They won their race knowing that even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of their sin and their struggles and the wars, 
and the wars that were coming. They had hope in Advent in this promise that latter days were coming. God would deliver his people. God would restore Israel. And while we are in the last days, the last days continue on until Christ returns. So we must live by the same faith and endurance as our fathers, as our forefathers. Listen to Hebrews 9, 28. The writer of Hebrews writes, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here we are called to persevere. Advent calls us to persevere, to endure. Do you struggle with sin? Do you suffer its consequences? Do you struggle with the shame of your life? Listen, dear Christian, Christ dealt with that sin. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And you are rich in Christ. If you believe, no matter your sin or the sinful nature with which you will struggle your whole life long, in Christ, you are rich in the Lord, rich with forgiveness and salvation and mercy. It is yours. Do you struggle with sorrow and pain? Christ dealt with death. 1 John 4, 9 in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him so that we might live through him. You see, it is the latter days. It is the days of forgiveness and it is days to have hope in Christ. Hope in the midst of the pain and the sorrow, the tribulations and sorrows and trials, we are promised the advent of grace and mercy. This advent kingdom is a latter-day kingdom. And our second point is a kingdom of truth. The advent kingdom, point two, is a kingdom of truth. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established to the highest as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Here, Isaiah's vision pictures the rule and reign of God. God is above all. In the latter days, God will be above all. He will stand above all powers and principalities, all governments, all ideologies, anything that seeks to overcome God, God will crush immediately because he is the highest mountain. Daniel had the same vision. If you remember the prophecy of Daniel, in Daniel's vision, Daniel actually visions two mountains. The first mountain in Daniel's vision was the old covenant kingdom of Israel to which Christ was born, born of a woman, born under the law. And if you remember in that vision, that mountain comes, and from that mountain, a rock is cut. And that rock is cast towards the symbol of evil and idolatry, and it destroys and crushes that symbolism. 
And then from that crushed, destroyed symbolism of evil rises a world-filling mountain. And that rock was Christ. And that was rock was Christ when he destroyed sin, death, and devil in this world in the first advent and has set up now an eternal kingdom on earth that is filling this world. And that second mountain in Daniel's vision that stands above all is the vision of Isaiah. This mountain that fills the world, this house of the Lord, highest of all houses, powerful than all powers. This mountain stands above all because Christ has destroyed sin and death and he has established the kingdom of God above all. And then it says the nations will flow to it. In verse three, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, of the God of Jacob. And let us go that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This verse is basically saying doctrine unites. You've heard the phrase doctrine divides? Wrong. The Bible says wrong. According to Advent, doctrine unites. You see, the nations are coming together to unite. This mountain house of the Lord that conquers all error, that conquers idolatry and evil, is a mountain of truth, and the people want that truth. Jerusalem is the center of truth, and the nations flock. You know what this is a reversal of? Do you remember a time in history when people tried to create a tower that reached to the heavens? when man and their idolatry wanted to be as high as God, and God frustrated languages and divided the people because of idolatry. This is a reversal of Babylon, or of Babel. This is a reversal of Babel. In Babel, the world, the nations dispersed, and now we have wars and rumors of wars, but now that's corrected. When the, house, when the mountain house of the Lord comes, the people unite. The nations are drawn together. No longer are the many peoples of this world satisfied with their own knowledge, their own salvation, their own truth. They want the way. They want the truth. And they want the light. And they forsake this world to have it. To go to the mountain house of the Lord. You see, God's way is found in truth. Most today want the opposite. Most of them want the opposite, and many cater. All ideology, ideologies apart from Christ cater to this world. And even those religious ideologies cater to the broad way that only leads to death. But our calling, our identity, and our goals must come from the word of God alone. We must obey the truth. Now look at the text. It's very clear. We must obey the word of the truth, he, that he may teach us his ways, not any other way, his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. You see, at this mountain, there's no freedom at this mountain. This mountain offers you no freedom to go your own way. Look how clear this mountain is. It's restrictive. His ways, his word, his law. There's no freedom at this mountain to go your own way. Calvin's good here. John Calvin says, I quote, God's commands are called ways, ways and paths 
in order to teach us that there is only one way and to deviate from God's word is to go completely astray and be lost forever. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which man may be saved. And then here's where the world fights back in three, two, one. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, that's, that's narrow. That's confining. That's not very inclusive. And you're right. <laughs> but that is the way of truth. Is it not the way of truth to be true? To be the only truth? You see, truth is absolute. And when we talk religious truths, all other ways to God, the broad way is error that only leads to death. We need the truth. And this truth is found with God, the text says. His ways, his path, his law. So we must go to God. And it's only found where? It says, in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, and that is the church, the house of God, the Israel of God, where the word of God is clearly taught. You see, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, reminds us as a church that we worship God on the mountain of the Lord. We worship God on the mountain of the Lord. And the last days began, the last days began in the book of Acts in Jerusalem when the disciples began their ministry of the word that has been, pro that has been proclaimed now to the ends of the earth. And the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is doctrinal and his voice must be the word of God alone. And by the word, heaven comes upon us, and we are transformed. You see, the kingdom has come in the last days, and it is a kingdom of truth. And because it is a kingdom of truth, dear Christian, my third point, it is a kingdom of peace. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace. Some Christians actually believe that this peace can be established, this worldwide peace can be established in this age. If only we'll get our act together, and start transforming society, and we can transform this world into a glorious utopia of peace. In the beginning of the 20th century, you young people, in the beginning of the 20th century, we weren't, most of it, we weren't around, but in the beginning of the 20th century, people really had this expectant hope. We had the enlightenment, and we had all of these new resources, and technology was exploding, and the world began to think, we can have this peace, this worldwide peace. And many people started claiming and crying out for one world under God. But that century was dominated by the Spanish flu, war 
World One, War, World Two, Nuclear Weapons, Nationalism, the Cold War, and the Post-Cold War. Others say this prophecy, therefore, is not fulfilled until the millennium reign of Christ sometime after a very secret rapture. But the Bible reminds us there's no golden age utopia this side of glory. There's just war and rumors of more. What you should see here in this text is men who were prone by nature to hate God and their neighbor are changed. Men who are prone by nature to hate God and their neighbor are, are changed. Now they love God. And now they seek after him with all of their might. And they love their neighbor and they want to cultivate now their neighbor's well-being. You see, when Christ reigns, when Christ reigns, those who were evil born in sin are transformed from the inside out. And love becomes the principle Love is the principle of God's government. Love is the principle of God's government. We love because he first loved us. So the gospel is the doctrine of reconciliation. And so the angels pronounced at Jesus' birth, peace on earth. And that peace happened when Peter preached the gospel for the first time in the book of Acts. When he said, this promise is for you and all your children and those who are far off, for all those God who calls to himself. And after pre Peter preaches that sermon, what do you see? What do we see after Peter preaches that sermon? The nations come looking for truth. The nations are added to the church and they become what? One. And the book of Acts says, and they shared, they shared what they had and no one had need of anything. They all had in common and there was no need. There was not any need for anyone in the church. Unity, peace. And this same prophecy is fulfilled every time the gospel takes root in the heart and our sins are truly forgiven and we have fellowship with the blessed Trinity. And that fellowship with the blessed Trinity now extends to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors. And then the complete fulfillment of this prophecy, prophecy will come at the end when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Yet it is enough for us to experience, it is enough for us to experience the fulfillment of of this prophecy right now. Right now in the hearing of the word, in the ministry of the sacraments, Isaiah 2 is fulfilled. And we not only see, we not only hear, we touch and we taste the glory of God and the blessings of the kingdom of God. So right now through the ministry of the word and the sacraments, Isaiah's vision is on full display. And by the preaching of the word, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So do not refuse him who is speaking to you this day. 
Christ's blood is a better word. And it is the only voice of truth and peace and eternal life. It is the word of the last days, the day to give God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and that worship begins with faith. Believe. Do you believe? Do you trust Christ? Believe and know that God will never leave or forsake you, no matter your sin or your sinful nature with which you will suffer your whole life long. For when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself, for our God is a consuming fire. And it is the grace of the kingdom of God that is now established, has been established now and forever. And now to the king, eternally mortal, invisible, be glory now and forever. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.